lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Luke, the 11th chapter. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Then he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is the gospel of our Lord. So I'm having a busy summer. I turned 45 this year. Uh, two of my four kids just turned 18 and graduated from uh, high school. Uh, I think a lot, we've, we've, uh, we've combined our church, uh, even sort of in some ways uh, diversified our ages in our church. And so I think a lot about what it means to grow up, uh, what it means to age. Even just a year ago, my, my last living grandparent died. Uh, I think a lot about what it means to grow up, to grow older, and to age, and to try to mature uh, in, in a good and healthy way. You know how it is. Sometimes, especially, this can happen whether you're 18 or whether you're 80 years old, but especially you can see it sometimes in older people uh, as they grow. Isn't it true that sometimes, unfortunately, you find people that seem to get uh, more, uh, I don't know, I wanted to use the word small, but they almost just get more rigid um, more dogmatic. They tend to get harder around certain issues or, or habits. Uh, they seem to even shrink before you become less, uh, less sort of whole and almost caricatures of themselves. And you see this happen more and more often as people are isolated and just sitting around consuming news all the time or whatever it may be. 
Uh, all that people can do, all that comes out of their mouth is whatever they just read on the, on the internet and the news this morning. People just get hard and pull away from each other and get more dogmatic. You see this happen. It's really unfortunate. It happens often with people. But then there are other people, especially when they get older and they get a little wiser. You might see a spark on their eyes, even if they don't say much. They seem to get a little more loose and fluid. They can bend through difficult circumstances. They are kind of flexible and pliant. But they also seem to have a little bit of a heft to them, a little bit of a weight. They seem deep, even expansive, like they're becoming not just older, but elders, wise. And this is the person that in the room may not speak the most, but you kind of want them to. You want them to talk more. And I wonder about this quality. What is the difference? How do we become the kind of people that become more open and large rather than rigid and hard? I think it's characterized by a type of humility of your place in the world and who you are, a type of openness, a curiosity about life, remaining curious rather than dogmatic, and searching Searching for something more, knowing that you don't have it all. You don't have all the answers. You are not the end all and be all of everything in the world. You might use the word seeking. That you remain on the hunt. You remain alert, looking for something deeper, searching for something more, seeking in the world. I would suggest that at least in this life, at least, probably in the one beyond as well, we are meant to constantly be seekers to seek something beyond, something more, and not to settle down and get rigid and hard and build our little castle around us and our little fortress. See, we're usually seeking to settle down in life. There is a part of us that just wants so much for things to be secure and safe. Seek to come to the end of your journey, the end of your struggle, the end of the hustle, a place to settle down, to be settled, a happy ending. And it's hard because we work hard for something and sometimes we get it. And then we find we don't even want it. You struggle for the years to get to the top and find that life there is thoroughly boring. You have some goal like an academic degree or a career position, a certain standard of living, acquiring some possession, getting married, having a child, landing a job, visiting a country, meeting a celebrity. But having got what we had always wanted, we find we have not gotten what we wanted at all. We're less fulfilled than ever and are conscious only of a deadness inside me, as Charles Colson put it, when his favorite president finally won the presidency, his favorite candidate. See, we're usually, something in us is seeking to settle, but the the problem is in this life, we tend to settle for something less than what we were made for. We settle for something in the world rather than through the world seeking the one who made the world. We settle for things in this life rather than the author of life himself. We try to settle down and take what we can get here, but we never are actually settled, right? We're unsettled. So for a person of faith, I think the way to grow, whether you're 18 or 80, the way to grow is to continue to seek in and through your life, the circumstances of your daily week this week, your day, your life, together as a community in this church, in our era, for our place, to continue to seek through the events and things of our life 
to seek the one who made all things and sustains all things, to settle only finally in his presence and in the homeland that he is preparing for us, to seek to remain, as I say often, on journey, on pilgrimage. Hebrews 11, I won't read the whole thing, but of course the great hall of faith puts it this way. Faith is the assurance of things that you hope for, the conviction of things not yet seen. This is how all the people of faith received their commendation. It says, if they'd been thinking of the land from which they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, one that comes from heaven. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In and through the circumstances of this city to seek the eternal city coming into our place of residence. In this country, in this land, in this earth, to seek one that is God's kingdom coming even now and will come fully. He is preparing it for us. He is bringing it to us. To seek this. This is what the life of faith is about, which means this is what human life is about. And if you are not yet a person of faith, if you're exploring faith again or for the first time, this is what your life is made for. This is why God has given you life, that you might be a seeker and seek him in and through all things. To go on an intentional journey toward a sacred destination. This is what pilgrimage is, in which all that you experience along the way is meant to be included. We welcome it, knowing that whether it's hard or fun, it will shape us. It's meant to make us more and more into people of faith, people of pilgrimage, people that are longing and seeking for something more than merely this earth or this life can give us. You see them in the Old Testament. They're journeying toward Jerusalem, toward the land of promise, toward the heavenly city. We heard in Colossians, we are to, to seek to grow into a new body where Christ is the head and we are members of it and we grow into maturation into, into his image as a community. This is a way of life, a journey where we're open, open to change, open to danger, newness, adventure, growth. Not seeking to just have a possession or a secure fortress or even a final arrival here. An openness and a following. This is how you become a person that I described at the beginning, a person of life and depth and richness and even diversity within yourself that can welcome and connect with all sorts of different kinds of people and experience. See, Christianity means movement. It means not sitting still. It was originally called the way, which we might call now the road, the path, the way, a way of life. What I'm trying to say here is when we go to be pithy, we grow. Only when we go do we grow. And in our passage we read just a moment ago in Luke chapter 11, uh, they are on a journey toward Jerusalem. It said in chapter 9 that Jesus set his face. They're out in the countryside. He sets his face firmly toward Jerusalem. And he's like, let's go. We're going. And they're on this journey with Jesus. And they're encountering all sorts of things. Hospitality. They were just at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, and they're being served a nice meal and sitting with Jesus and hearing from him. And all the people have gathered. And then they're going into other towns. And, and they're having to wipe their, the sand off their feet, the dust off their feet, where people aren't welcoming them. And they're being shunned and turned away. And there's dangers of hunger and thirst and uh, fatigue <laughs> and being in the desert and all sorts of things. They're on this journey. They think they're going to Jerusalem to conquer and to make Jesus king, and it's going to be great. And of course, he is going to conquer, but something deeper than just the Roman army. 
He's coming to conquer our separation from God through our sin and all that separates every bit of this creation from the love and presence of God. And so they're on this journey. They're seeking something more in and with Jesus. And it says this. As they're going along the way, Jesus was praying in a certain place. So he stopped and went off to pray. When he had finished, he comes back and one of his disciples says to him, basically, hey, the great John the baptizer, John the Baptist, he taught his disciples a certain way to pray. Will you teach us how to pray, Jesus? We want to be taught how to pray. Teach us how to have this abundant life you seem to have with God that gives you power and courage and joy in this journey, Jesus. We see it in your life. We see how you're simultaneously powerful but humble. How you know exactly what you believe and what is right, and yet you're open to all. We are eager to learn now, and that's what being a disciple means, that you are a student. We are eager to learn. We're seeking to learn something new and more. Jesus, will you teach us? Teach us how to pray. And of course, they knew Jesus was a man of prayer. In the Gospels, we get glimpses into the prayer habits of Jesus. I could give you the references later if you want, but I'm guessing you'll trust me this morning. Mark chapter one, he rises early to pray in a solitary place. Luke five says, often withdrawing into the wilderness to pray. He's often withdrawing into the wilderness to pray. In Luke six, we see him praying all night in preparation to select his apostles. Of course, there's the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, his night of agony. He prays even while he is crucified to the cross. See, Jesus was a man of prayer. He set aside time in his day to talk with his heavenly Father. Someone has said this, and I think it's fascinating, that Jesus went, one way to look at his life, his life of public activity and ministry that's recorded for us, he went from place of prayer to place of prayer. And in between, he did some miracles and some teaching. See, for Jesus, prayer was utterly central, not just in difficult times, but always. There is no one better to teach us and his disciples about prayer. And his example had an effect on people who saw him praying, of course. They're seeing his rich and abundant, transformative life. They're seeing his activity and his action, but they're also seeing this contemplation and this meditation, this connection with God. The passage just we heard last week, Pastor Stedman preached, and we heard the passage, it's in Luke chapter uh, uh, 10. Mary and Martha, they're sitting there. And although, and Brian explained to us that often people have taken this as a life of action versus the life of contemplation. Uh, Martha's busy, 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 getting the dinner ready, and she gets mad at her sister who's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him and communing with him, and uh, and says, Martha, you're worried about many things, but there's one thing necessary, because she's mad that her sister is praying, contemplating, communing with Jesus rather than working. And as Brian, I think, uh, argued well, it's not so much that it's the life of action versus the life of contemplation, and we'll dig into this in a second. It's more that Mary was communing with Jesus. And Martha, rather than communing with Jesus in her work, through love serving him, she's growing resentful and frustrated and distant from God and from her sister and from others through her activity. And so they've heard this. They heard Jesus just 
tell Martha that Mary had chosen the better part and there's only one thing in life that is absolutely necessary, i.e. communion with God at all times and in all things. And so they see Jesus do activity, but now he also takes time to go and pray. They see him pray and they've seen this holistic life and this sort of ebb and flow of activity and contemplation and how it all fits together and empowers one thing and the other back and forth. They're seeing this ordered, integrated life. They're seeing him flourish and how he makes others flourish. And so they say, how do you do this? How do we pray? Teach us how. And we'll spend just a moment on this. This isn't a a sermon on the Lord's Prayer this time. I'd probably go to Matthew for that because you get the fuller version in Matthew. Luke just has little snippets of it really quick. But notice as Jesus starts, he starts their prayer with a pattern, with a formula. He gives them actual words to say. He says to them, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. We ourselves forgive everyone, excuse me, everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. He gives them a daily, at least, prayer. Each day they're supposed to say this because they're asking for my bread today. I'm not asking that you would super pad my 401k and give me all the stuff so I don't have to worry anymore and stop praying. No, today I ask you to nourish me. I I ask you to give me what I need today. Daily prayer. And he says, say it like this. Here's a nice formula, pattern, a launching pad, if you will, a foundation to build on, a habitual thing to say over and over again, a liturgy. And that's because habits shape us. Again, this is just an aside, but habits shape us They form us, and they can form us more into God's image or less into his image. And he wants us to be shaped, at least daily, through prayer in a certain way that cultivates us into the kind of people that he wants us to be and that we most deeply want to be, to seek something more in and through our prayer life. He gives us a daily prayer. And we know that our habits and our culture and our systems and our institutions and our media landscape, these things are not designed by nature to shape us more deeply into the image of God and his outpouring love and his sacrifice. And so we need other habits to come in and to root us and ground us. Or you might say to be like, you know, the bowling alley downstairs that we have here in the, in the bonnet thing, that on the side, when you put the bumpers in and it keeps you moving down towards the destination, we have these habits that shape us in the right direction over and over again as we hear all these people calling from the left or from the right or from whatever, worry, hate, this and that. No, we have these habits that shape us towards God's image, towards love. And so Jesus gives us this, this beautiful prayer. One person has written, a community that prayers the Lord's Prayer is a community very conscious of its privileged closeness to God. But it prays, I mean, it starts with our Father, for example, something that no one had ever taught anyone to pray to God in the history of the world until Jesus did it. You can call him your Abba, your Father. So it's a community that knows its closeness to God, but it prays the prayer in the world as part of the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. On behalf of the world, to which is witnesses to the onset of God's kingdom. So it is saying the community of faith is praying for sustenance, for reconciliation, for deliverance from evil, not just for itself, but for the entire human family, whose dignity and destiny as children of God it tries to model and proclaim. In short, it it prays the entire human race 
may return to the hospitable home of the Father. We are praying as we seek the kingdom to come, as we seek to be like Christ, we are praying that the whole world might seek him as well and be made in his image and given his shalom. But notice for a second just how brief Jesus' answer to the how is. Jesus immediately, in our passage here in Luke, kind of moves quickly through that habit and that pattern and starts to talk about the why. Why should we pray? Not just how, but why should we pray? Let me ask questions in a different way. How do we, you and I, properly live an embodied life, I'm in this body, in a created world full of tangible things, and amongst other enfleshed human beings, how do we do this and dignify this touchable, smellable, edible theater of God's making and yet remain seekers? So how do we enjoy this life? Not to be, as they say, so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. Not that kind of situation. How do we enjoy the journey? Yes, smell the roses, all those things, while not settling. How is a good question, but I think why is better. We need to know how, and Jesus thinks we need to know why we pray. Why there is one thing needful. Why is the one thing necessary to be a growing, open human being? Why is it communion with God through prayer? Being with him interpersonally. We ask questions about how. Is it just words? Is it just habits? Is it just quiet times? Do I, am I withdrawing from the world when I pray? Who will do the work? Who will keep the walk? Is, it like, is this a monastic versus Protestant work, work ethic? Is it Mary versus Martha? And I think, no, I love actually this one other quote. This is the last quote I'll give you, and then we'll, we'll apply some of these things. Martin Buber was a philosopher uh, and also a sort of mystical uh, Jewish person in the, uh, working mostly in the early 20th century. And this is actually from Wikipedia. describes him. He says, the Jewish ideal, according to Buber, is... He they emphasized a life lived in the unconditional presence of God. Let me say that again. He emphasized a life lived in the unconditional presence of God, where there was no distinct separation between daily habits and religious experience. The question is then, oh, what is prayer? How are contemplation and action connected? How do we work and pray? Teach us how to pray. Martin Bieber says this, and I love this quote. This is a quote from him in a book called Tales of the Hasidim. This equally could have been written by any number of uh, 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 especially middle-aged mystical Christian uh, traditions. This is just the quote I had at hand that I think is really lovely. The world in which you live, just as it is and not otherwise, affords you the association with God which will redeem you in whatever divine aspect of the world you have been entrusted with. And your own character, the very qualities which make you what you are, constitutes your special approach to God, your special potential use for him. And so, do not be vexed at your delight in creatures and things. I translate that, Jameson, it's totally okay that you love the ocean and cheeseburgers. Enjoy it. Do not be vexed at yourself that you delight in creatures and things. However, do not let it shackle itself to creatures and things. Through these things, 
Press on to God. Do not rebel against your best desires, but seize them and bind them to God. You shall not stifle your surging powers, but let them work at holy work and rest at holy rest in God. This is really the great secret that I think was Jesus was trying to teach to Mary and Martha. I think Martin Buber puts it lovely in a lovely way here. It's what many of the great saints who are especially known for their prayer lives is that you can pray the work and you need to also work at prayer. And that there is a kind of ebb and flow that we need more time alone and contemplating and meditating and being one-on-one with God who lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so often, of course, when we find ourselves in a world that's been turned from God's garden of delight into often a desert and we're journeying through it, we're seeking something deeper and there's threats on every hand, we have an instinct either to fight or to freeze or to flight, to run away. But is our first instinct to pray. Anne of Green Gables said this, or in Anne of Green Gables said this, they asked her, why don't you pray, girl? And her answer was, someone once told me that God gave me my red hair and ever since I haven't cared for him very much. Contrast that with the Song of Solomon who said, I will seek him whom my soul loves. And this is the secret. This is the why you pray. The God that you are seeking is a God of matchless, generative, sacrificial, never-ending love. It will never come to an end, his love. For you, you will never use it up. You will never destroy it. And knowing that God is nothing less than the supreme lover of you and of all things will motivate you to pray to him. And so do you believe? Do you believe that he is a God of love? If you believe this, then you will pray to him in times of special communion, alone, in your closet, as Jesus put it. Go to a quiet place, not in front of everyone. If you believe this, you will come to church with others as the body of Christ and grow together into a new body, and you will publicly pray as we are doing this morning. You will do it extemporaneously when you talk to them. You're like, I don't like what's going on. Why don't you show up? Why haven't I felt you in years? What's happening? You'll just talk to him as you walk along the way. You'll talk to him as you're t- talking to your children, walking down the block, and they say, why do we do this and not that? And you'll be praying as you talk to your children. You'll be praying as you do your work, as you wash the dishes or change diapers or go about your career or plan your savings or any of the things that you're doing. You will find God in and through those things. You will thank him and bless him and lament to him and wrestle with him and walk with him seeking a final homeland. These are the things we can do if we believe that as we do it, we get more of him. This is where he ends I'm going to skip trying to explain the, uh, the strange parable. It really makes sense to his original hearers about the neighbor and the impudence and knocking on the door. Uh, you have to understand ancient Near East hospitality to understand that the whole thing is absurd. Jesus is telling what, a, a story that makes no sense to me. There's not a single person in the ancient Near East who wouldn't have gotten up and shown hospitality. So he's like, 
this is the worst neighbor ever, and even the worst neighbor ever still gives that person hospitality, how much more do you think God is going to, God isn't like you. I tell you, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. He's like a lovely father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. How much more will he give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him? This is why we pray that as we pray, we're praying for more God within us who will expand us and root us and deepen us and move us and shape us, making us not rigid and settled and dogmatic and angry and small, but big and open and loving and forgiving and hopeful. Is this what you believe in God? If you're like me, you often think, I'm going to ask and I receive eh, something. Not really what I really wanted. Or that if I look for a treasure, if I'm seeking him, I'm often going to come up empty. But I've been standing knocking at the door for a long time. There's no answer. What I really want is something super nice, like an egg or a fish. And sometimes he just makes me settle for like a scorpion or a snake. Jesus says, come on, that is not who God the Father is. He is your Father. He gives himself. And he gives all good things to those who seek him. Primarily, he gives you himself. And this is why we pray. As we pray, and as we pray through our work, and as we pray in the world, we receive more and more of him. You become more and more like him. You get to seek, and you find the Holy Spirit. We can ask the Lord to teach us not just to do things, but to be. And that's a good question for you in closing this week. In your work and in your times of prayer, not just what are you doing with your life, but who are you becoming as you grow, as you grow older? Who are you becoming? Seek God, and you will find him, and he will add all extra good things to you in his eternal love and power. He will give good gifts to you for his children, so seek him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.